0: Welcome back to Until It's Fixed, season two. Until It's Fixed focuses on the health industry, what's working, what's not, and the new ideas and actions that are changing things for the better. I'm your co-host, Stacey Dove.
1: And I'm Callie Chamberlain. Today, we're gonna be talking about the medical industry's relationship to digital technology, something that a lot of us take for granted in our daily lives. We use it for shopping, navigation, entertainment, and increasingly, telehealth. Telehealth and digital access is an increasingly interesting and important conversation because of the speed at which technology is changing. I remember growing up and having dial-up internet. We had a separate room in our home that was called the computer room where we all had one computer that we used to access things. You know, it's just the evolution of that compared to today where everyone in my family now has a cell phone and we all have access to the internet. I'm able to pick up my phone and call a car, you know, get food delivered to my home, order a package. It's just amazing to think about how quickly we have gotten to this place. And again, the speed at which things have changed. Stacey, what are your thoughts?
0: You know, I think it's true and it's something that we all take for granted. And particularly when we all had to adjust for the pandemic, we relied even more so on technology so that we could work from home so that our kids could learn from home. And also, you know, to get medical care um, in a telehealth virtual session. So there's a lot of different ways that we we have really been able to access technology like we never have before. However, with that said, we do know that there is a very big gap between those who have access to technology, broadband, and just technology overall versus those who do not. And I think that really became apparent during the pandemic pandemic. So with that said, um, we're gonna take a listen to Christy Henderson, who in episode one talked about this very critical topic. Let's hear what she had to say. I think that oftentimes there's two sides of the coin on how people look at telehealth when it comes to health equity. Is telehealth gonna worsen inequity or is it actually a solution for inequity? And what I really try to do is always stay focused on the needs of the individual. It's not that everybody needs the same kind of care, but what we want is the same equal access to the care that people need. So individualized care and access for all to get the care that they need Telehealth allows another access point, and we can reach people that before had inability to access because of inequities and geographic disparities that existed, for example. It doesn't mean that we don't have places where broadband connectivity is a challenge or where people don't have access to smartphones to be able to do a telehealth visit.
1: Christy was getting at something that's historically been called the digital divide— a way of talking about the spectrum of technology access and literacy and how it impacts people. You'll also hear the term digital inequity in this episode. These words are meant to describe the differences that fall across demographic lines, age, race, income, and geography.
0: So in today's episode, we're going to talk about digital health technology development and how it is outpacing parallel efforts to conquer the digital health divide, or as Callie just said, digital inequity. Some of that could include accessing electronic health records, obtaining information to support discussions with your doctor, making telehealth appointments, and so on. So just a lot of different ways that digital technology is utilized. So this topic we know is so critical to the wellness and the future of Americans. And so just to put it into perspective, there's a few facts that I think will be helpful to share with you. In 2021, Pew Research showed that 42 million Americans don't have access to broadband, which showed a much higher number than what's more recently been estimated by the FCC. And 75% of those 42 million Americans are people of color. And in 2020, the University of Pittsburgh and Harvard Medical School teamed up to assess digital disparities among people with Medicare. In analyzing a survey conducted in 2018, they found 26% of Medicare beneficiaries did not have access to a computer with high speed internet or a smartphone with a data plan.
1: Yeah, this is such a big issue that could balloon as technology is embedded more deeply into our lives, more deeply dividing all of us. We reached out to two guests from Advisory Board, a company that helps healthcare leaders advance their organizations Ray Woods and Ty Adderhold. <laughs>
0: Do you want to tell me a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. So I serve as the director of digital health research here at the advisory board. I've been an advisory board for about five years now, focused both early on in my career, really on radiology and imaging, um, and then for the past couple of years, focused on technology and digital health research here.
3: All right. Ray. do you want to introduce yourself? I am a, a managing director with the executive insights team which basically is a fancy way of saying it is my job to be the face and the voice of the thought-provoking, counterintuitive insights that VPs and above across the healthcare ecosystem need to understand in order to change healthcare for the better. And that's actually my side gig (laughs) because my other job is hosting our podcast, Radio Advisory, uh, which is kind of conversation-based interviews about the murky, difficult –
1: issues um, in the healthcare ecosystem. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you all think about what's happening in this body of work. I've heard it referred to as the digital divide, digital inequities, what are your thoughts?
2: So I would say historically at advisory board, we've used the term digital divide. I think that's sort of the commonplace lingo that is out there. But as we dove into our research across the past year, You know, I found in conversations when I would mention the digital divide, it would always immediately go towards a conversation around infrastructure and that the term was actually sort of limiting the scope of how people thought about it. So we've switched to calling this digital inequities really for two reasons. Um, First, when you think about a digital divide, that implies that this is a binary issue. There's haves and have-nots when in reality, when we think about digital inequities there's a spectrum of ability and access, and, and patients can and individuals can move between, you know, having or having nots, uh, or or be somewhere in the middle on that spectrum. I think the other issue is, you know, a digital divide. It quickly becomes when we talk about solutions the idea of bridging a divide, and that leads us directly into this infrastructure issue. So we start thinking about broadband access or devices, and we don't necessarily think about other components of digital inequities, such as digital literacy.
3: And I think it's important to mention that anybody who has a strategy or an initiative to bridge the digital divide has good, positive, strong intentions. We want to make sure that we're being as accurate as possible, and we're thinking ahead about the downstream implications of even some of our most well-intentioned efforts. So we don't want this haves and have-nots to seem like we're talking about a group of people on the other side of the tracks, so to speak. So we find that it's just a better, maybe less sexy term, but it's more accurate to describe what we're talking about here as addressing digital inequities.
1: How does that relate to social determinants of health?
2: I would say we're we're really putting our foot down that digital inequities are a social determinant of health. It's not just something that impacts other social determinants of health, but access to technology, the ability to use technology is in and of itself a social determinant of health.
0: So what is advisory board's relationship to this topic of digital inequities in healthcare?
2: I would say for... The past few years we've been researching it in passing, but this past year we really decided to dive in to research in more detail what sort of the root causes of some of this digital inequity that was being experienced in society, as well as, you know, what the healthcare ecosystem sort of Overall, thinking about health systems, but also payers and technology vendors can be doing to help combat some of the digital inequities that are currently uh, out there.
1: What are some of the main components of digital inequities?
2: Sure. I think the, the most obvious one, and, and the one that I've already briefly mentioned, is broadband and broadband infrastructure, access to broadband and connectivity. I think very much related to that is also the access to devices themselves, the hardware that individuals use to get online, whether it's a computer or a cell phone. I think the component that we found was often missed, or, or at least thought of less, uh, was digital literacy. So certainly want to highlight that. And then lastly, I want to highlight as well issues of accessibility. So are the digital tools and the software that's being designed, are they accessible to all of our populations as opposed to just some.
3: And this is really important, because I think we find that people get tripped up when they think about digital inequity, or going back to the term the digital divide, as one thing. They think this is all just about broadband. This is just about getting wires literally to parts of the country that don't have it. But to Ty's point, this is a much bigger, more complex problem. I tend to find that it fits into two levels. There's the way that the problem manifests for individual people and patients. That's their access to broadband. That's their access to a device or a technology, their ability to understand and interact with that technology. But there are also a whole host of structural root causes that ultimately exacerbate inequities. And those are things like education, employment, socioeconomic status, things that cut across multiple social determinants of health that absolutely have an impact on technology and the
1: digital inequities that we see. That makes a lot of sense and makes sense why you're describing the digital inequities as a fundamental social determinant of health. So what does research tell us about access to modern technology like broadband and smartphones, and then if you can maybe go a little bit deeper into what you're describing around how that impacts someone's
2: service or healthcare experience. That's been a problem for a long time, and I think that's where you know politicians and, and just general leaders go and turn to first when they talk about what are the issues in access. For the rural population that lives more than 70 minutes from a, a primary care provider, less than 40% of that population has the necessary broadband to conduct a telehealth visit. So there just is not the you know physical wiring or the necessary speeds to actually have a video conversation. But as soon as I talk about that, I always love to turn to a few other statistics that show it's not just a rural issue. The one I always say is 2.2 million New York City residents do not have broadband. And that's in a city that, you know, 99% of residents have the necessary infrastructure for broadband, but maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they're choosing not to have it. And that's, you know, a huge number of people. And looking at another city, you know, Detroit, 40% of households in Detroit are completely offline. So that means no broadband and no cellular connections.
0: So can you help us and our listeners understand why does this matter? Why is this such a big topic? that needs to be addressed, especially now?
2: You know, I would say that there is, there's two big reasons. One is that digital inequities has been already, for years now, a social determinant of health. So it impacts education. It impacts the ability to find a job. It impacts your ability to stay connected to your social circles. And we know all of those can have major impacts on health outcomes down the line. But especially, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen health systems and in general healthcare rapidly investing in digital health tools. And we've seen this rapid adoption of using, you know, virtual care tools to connect with patients. And if we don't also work towards addressing digital inequities, we're going to see this this sort of dichotomy where digitally connected patients have a totally different healthcare experience that's, you know, more convenient, maybe you know, they're connecting with their providers way more often because they're able to use these virtual care tools whereas patients who aren't connected have none of those options available.
3: I'll tell you what keeps me up at night is when I roll the tape forward and when I start thinking about healthcare 5, 10, 15 years from now. And it's not just that we've learned during the greatest crisis of our time how valuable access to technology is for fundamental public health safety, but we know that technology is going to be a necessary part of the patient-provider relationship because there aren't enough providers, if I do roll the tape forward, to be able to care for the complex needs of an aging population. So when you start to think about the fact that technology is going to be a part of the care team moving forward, I start to get really, really concerned about what that's going to mean for the people who are either not going to have access to that vital member of the care team or who are ultimately going to have worse outcomes compared to their counterparts. And my biggest fear is that You know, I don't want to create a two-tiered healthcare system. We want to make sure that we're making these inequities smaller, not bigger, as we're looking to innovation in the future.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious what approaches you are seeing as bright spots. I just sort of ragged on
3: innovation as being something that, if we're not careful, could make the problem worse. But there have absolutely been bright spots in the last 12 to 18 months of folks who are using technology in a way that actually reduces digital inequities. My favorite comes from an organization in my home state of Ohio, ProMedica, who is really, really smart when it comes to the data backbone behind a social determinants of health strategy. And amidst the pandemic, they realized that they needed to add to their robust screening tool access to technology because they need to understand who do I need to bring into the office versus who can safely be at home because of COVID. We need to be capturing that information so that we're getting them information about access to the vaccine in the easiest accessible way. And so they took this robust screening tool that they already had about understanding your social determinants of health and your risk level, and they said, let's evolve it in the moment based on the new needs of the healthcare system and, frankly, the new needs of the patient population that we serve. That seems very simple, right? So why is this not happening on a broader scale? It does seem simple, but And I think there are simple solutions that folks can take. I am willing to bet that every single provider that is listening to this podcast has a structure for capturing patient information when they come to the office. But the problem is I'm not sure that that is systemized Or they might have pockets where they're really trying to capture extra information because it's a care management gap or because they know they're dealing with a high cost of care patient, a cancer patient, somebody with chronic kidney disease, etc. It is a lot harder to say we're not just doing this for a subset of patients or for a location and we need to do this for every single visit at every single provider location that we have. And that's where the, the kind of systemness that's required to make this data backbone a regular part of the patient-physician relationship, that's where things start to fall apart.
2: I'll give one example that, that we heard in the research that really made me feel positively about where where healthcare could go here. Uh, it comes from Seattle Children's Hospital. And they have a very robust loaner device program so patients who who come into the hospital um, as they're leaving if they might need follow-up care or or just in general um, maybe they live far away to be able to connect to the physicians they will offer patients loaner ipads and they they will offer that even before they have a conversation around you know if that patient has broadband access or not so they're really trying to you know, not make assumptions about who does or who doesn't, not make assumptions around, you know, they would certainly ask us if they needed it. Instead, they they proactively offer these devices, and these devices can be used to connect back to the health system. So they come with a built-in hotspot, but one small piece that I particularly liked is that they don't limit how that hotspot can be used. So that hotspot can also be used to help, you know, for those kids when they wanna do homework. That hotspot can be used for the family to Skype with another family friend or, or a family member. And so they're really impacting not just their immediate ability to connect with the patient, but this program from Seattle Children's also impacts, you know, overall that kid's health. Um, and I think that can be so powerful.
1: What I really appreciate what we've just covered is that it's not as simple as this person has access to a computer and this person doesn't. It's much more complicated and multidimensional, which makes sense. You know, it's not just correlated to other social determinants of health. It is a social determinant of health.
0: You know, it really is. And you think about water, plumbing, gas, heat, you know, food, all of those essentials, that are social determinants of health, I think that's where we need to and how we need to interpret digital technology and making sure that it's beyond the devices, but it also is the infrastructure that people have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not just private companies and doctors and clinics working to address this issue. It's government initiatives and policies that are also aimed at understanding and closing this gap. So you'll see and we'll talk about, you know, the broader cross industry partnerships that are making a difference today and are really required to be able to address something this big, which we talked about in our roundtable as well. When you think about where we're
0: at today and where we could potentially be three years from now, five years from now, what are you both seeing that makes you hopeful for the future?
2: You know, I would say really the the local action, and I would say that's both for community hospitals, but even at you know the local school district level. You know, I came across a, a story around a, a local Utah school district where they ended up building you know 44 Wi-Fi towers across a town, and gave receivers to every student and let every single student and those students' families operate on the school Wi-Fi system. And that is was just one school system one school district deciding to do this and actually implementing and seeing success and so the more and more i hear those stories from you know public education from you know community hospitals from other community organizations the more i believe we actually can make a dent here
3: i couldn't agree with ty more what gives me the most hope are the organizations that are thinking outside of what is it that a traditional medical provider could do. These inequities did not, you know, sprout up overnight and they are rooted in deeply systemic problems in this country and in the world and the people who are going to be making a difference are going to be the ones who are advocating for policy change, who are investing in education, who are supporting small, local, Black-owned businesses. That's true when we think about addressing digital inequities and when we think about addressing equity more broadly. I'm excited about those big, bold changes. As important as it is to do things like adjust the way that we're capturing risk in the moment that a patient uh, arrives at our doorstep, we've also got to be be keeping our eyes set on those bigger, bolder changes.
0: So, Ray, you talked about how this is not a core competency for a lot of organizations, and it does take partnerships. So, what have you seen um, so far? Where you you know you've seen that are the biggest mistakes that organizations are making in this space?
3: This is such an important question, and and I want to caveat by saying that well, inte- I, I don't want people to feel. Like they've failed because of a well-intentioned effort that's fallen short. But we do need to take a hard look at what we've done well and what where we haven't hit our mark if we actually want to be successful. For me, I find that leaders tend to think way too narrowly, right? We talked about thinking too narrowly in terms of broadband. Another one is thinking too narrowly about the population, Thinking this is just a rural problem, or this is just a problem for my older patients. And you know what? Because it's just for older patients, it's eventually going to go away when the next generation ages into the Medicare population, et cetera. And if we think narrowly about the problem, we're ultimately going to think too narrowly about the solution. And that's going to prevent us from actually being able to make inequities smaller. And so, in order to scale it, we've got to make sure we think bigger. Absolutely. And I know that it's easier said than done, especially in a moment where, again, we're coming off of a massive disruption. But we will not only lose momentum if we focus on too small of a population, too small of a solution set, don't put enough money into it, don't look at some of these root causes. But we're going to lose that momentum very, very quickly. And my fear is that in that time period, we not only won't have addressed digital inequities, we'll have actually made the problem worse. Right. And I think um,
0: I would love your thoughts on this, but I think it's a balance, right? Because sometimes if you think too big and how do I scale it, how can I do it? It can be paralyzing. And then you don't move.
3: Oh, well, I, I totally agree. And that's where prioritization still matters. You need to both balance having your eyes set on bold solutions while also prioritizing what are the one to three most important things that me and my team can get done right
2: now. So one thing I mentioned briefly earlier is digital literacy. And I think this is also often overlooked because there are so many components even within digital literacy. So not only is it, are you able able to navigate around a device. It's also about, are you able to discern what is trustworthy information on the internet? Um, it also you know, intersects with digital health literacy, too. So are you able to use a patient portal? Are you able to understand how to search symptoms, maybe, and, and interpret those results that you might get from a Google search? And so there are so many components of digital literacy, and it impacts. So much of how patients are now interacting with healthcare. I think another common misconception is the only thing about the video visit. Whereas in reality, you know, it's your the something as basic as your website. How many languages does your website exist in? Is your translation on the website for need to know information correct? Patient portals, there's so many different ways, email communication that we almost expect patients to now interact with us and for healthcare and individuals to interact, that if we don't think about digital literacy, we're not going to be able to solve and actually meet all of the individuals and the patients that we should.
3: I love that, Ty, because digital literacy isn't just can I understand what's happening about my health, but can I interpret all of the information that is around me in order to make informed decisions? I have one final question for both of you. Did either of you have any aha moments
0: or did you have any further clarity during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic?
3: I mean, my biggest aha moment is that anybody that ever thinks that there is a there is such thing as normal in healthcare is is kidding themselves. Obviously, we went through a huge disruption over the last 18 months. But I'm not sure that I would have defined healthcare in 2019 as having stability, as having normalcy, as having one clear path forward. It just became really obvious <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we when we had to deal with an international crisis.
2: I think thinking about during the pandemic how much I relied on technology for basic social interaction for ordering groceries really impacted how I think about how often I use technology every day and what that means for for individuals who may not have that access.
0: Thank you so much, Ty and Ray, for all of your expertise. And really, thank you very much for everything that you're doing for the health system, for providers, patients. You are making a difference and a big impact. And we are very lucky to have you. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: We also had a chance to speak with Dr. Nicole Turner Lee, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, along with the director of the Center for Technology Innovation. She's currently working on a book titled Digitally Invisible based off interviews she's done around America about this exact topic. We talked with her about the research she's done along with her perspective.
1: Thank you for joining us, Dr. Turner-Lee. We're so excited to have you. Can you tell us about the Brookings Institute and what you do there?
4: Well, Callie, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to participate in the podcast today. So the Brookings Institution is a global think tank. And so as a research fellow there, I'm a senior fellow in our governance studies department, and I'm also the director of the Center for Technology Innovation. What we do is provide nonpartisan objective research that allows policymakers to make really good decisions that are based in evidence. And civil society groups, as well as industry leaders and others, to just think about how we look at a range of issues that affect the public domain when it comes to consumers and citizens.
1: Awesome. How did you get started in the field of technology?
4: So I got into the field of technology as a sociologist. I was literally mm. working on a sociology uh, research. And I ran into a gentleman who had a computer center in an affordable housing complex. I landed up volunteering, Got so excited about the power of technology. And I'm going to date myself. Back then, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have, you know, we had AOL and a really cringy modem sound (laughs) that indicated that you had mail. And I really became interested in the fact that this technology was going to transform how we live, learn, and earn. And so, you know, I started as a digital activist and evangelist. And that later led me to Washington, D.C. to apply my doctorate to this space of technology policy.
1: And can you talk a little bit about the term digital divide versus digital inequity and why you use one versus the other? I like
4: to think of it this way, and I sort of talk about in my book, we're looking at a digital divide that's no longer about just, you know, fundamental access, but we're looking at a society where you have to have financial collateral to get a ride-sharing service, right? You have to have a smartphone to talk to your doctor. You have to have a tablet to get online to do your homework. So this is part of an ecosystem that I think we need to pay attention to because there's a spiral effect in all of this. I have tried to move us from a conversation of just digital divide, as I've suggested, because it's so binary, right? It's an either or. And I think that there's so many factors, it makes it much more complicated when we're talking about solutions. I use this concept of digitally invisible, because I do think that we assume in our society that everybody's connected, right? We think that everybody has a smartphone, everybody is streaming movies, you know, people have like just this real easy, seamless experience when it comes to online resources. And what I found was that there are people who are just basically invisible.
1: What do you see as the role of government in solving this problem?
4: Government has to be the catalyst. Government, unfortunately, is not going to be able to take the limited resources that they have and cover the whole country. It's not going to happen. If people think historically about our communications infrastructure, it's always been seeded by private industry, from the telegraph to the rotary telephone to the smartphone to the internet. These networks have primarily been built by private equity. With that being the case, what we're seeing now is that sometimes private equity doesn't make the right decisions when it comes to the business case, for bringing technology to rural communities or bringing competition to urban areas. With that being the case, that's a role for government. Where can government come in and play a role of either bringing more incentive for investment or helping local providers, nonprofit collaboratives who want to build for themselves? And in thinking about what President Biden is trying to do with the infrastructure plan, in my mind, we need a tech new deal one that addresses these issues of adoption so that we can close this divide, but also make sure we have workers who are prepared to stand in to build these networks.
1: Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that infrastructure bill that you're referencing?
4: It's one of those like inaugural investments, and you know it's hard to say. I've heard various numbers for broadband. I think the latest number I heard was about sixty-five billion to seventy billion. Then we're looking about twenty-four million for deployment, maybe about twelve million for affordability, and unfortunately just five million for adoption. The activities that get people online, like telehealth, uh, training, and other things. I think there's going to be a lot of money, you know, and I think there's also going to be an allotment in the infrastructure bill for states and and local cities to think about what gaps do they need to fill when it comes to infrastructure, because obviously the cities know best. I had an opportunity a couple of months ago to testify before the Congressional Ways and Means Committee, and I testified alongside water experts and transit experts and others. I think there's a vested interest in getting this done, just simply because it's not just hard assets, but to get America back in economic recovery, we also need the soft assets. People can't go back to work if they don't have childcare. Students can't go back to school if there's no access to what I call no child left offline resources, which are tablets in every backpack along with a textbook or hotspots for those who do not have access at home.
1: So, what else do we need to be doing as a society and industry to make things better?
4: Well, I think first we got to realize that this is a problem. Put it up there with these other issues. That is something I've been saying to people. Prioritize broadband access as one of your top five, not your top 10, not your top 20. Without connectivity, there's so many things that people cannot do. And it forecloses opportunities for economic, social, political viability. That's first and foremost. Start thinking about this. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate, right? My 14-year-old was home learning remotely, and we have a really good network, a really good broadband service, multiple devices, and multiple rooms. But put yourself in the shoes of other people. Uh, 35% of low-income households who had school-aged children only had one device shared among four or five kids. And because the parents were primarily frontline workers, guess what? That oldest child was the teacher. And as a result, we have big school districts, L.A. County being one of them, where fourteen to 15,000 kids just did not call in for school last year. And, you know, as a result, we're actually looking at some educational declines that we're going to have to deal with because it's going to impact those that are most vulnerable. Put ourselves in the shoes of other people and let's figure out, you know, how we can actually turn the tables so that technology goes back to being a place to solve problems.
1: Yeah, those are great points. And I'm wondering what you think about how we can plan for a long-term approach that doesn't wind up creating or reinforcing inequity, even if it's, you know, not something that's intentional.
4: We need a comprehensive plan for what the technology ecosystem looks like. That is part of the planning of our water systems, transit systems, and others. I think it's important that we have a plan for interagency cooperation and support. What is Health and Human Services doing to, you know, promote telehealth? How is that telehealth being promoted among the Veterans Affairs Division? How does that fall back into the schools? We just need more coordination. And I think finally, every industry should be thinking about where does digital fall for them? You know, they say when the train leaves the station, it's very hard to get a ticket until the next one comes. (laughs) Well, guess what? The train has left the station and it's accelerating. And so until we understand how to jump on that Acela and make it right, we're going to be sitting here trying to figure this out another time. And that's what I'm afraid of.
1: What successes have you seen in this area?
4: You know, I've seen a lot of successes. I've met a lot of wonderful people. You know, there's Dr. Kathy Trimble, who is a a principal that I met in Marion, Alabama, which was the birthplace of the Selma riots. K-12 through consolidated school based on some state performance uh, challenges. She introduced a one-to-one solution for her kids prior to the pandemic under former President Barack Obama's Connect Ed initiative. Every student in her school had a tablet. There's a woman that I met on my tour, a Helen She's an 80-plus-year-old woman who has a tech center in Cleveland. (laughs) She brings the senior citizens over. And at first, I thought that all they do is get together to actually create the church bulletin. But they actually are talking to each other on how to keep senior citizens safe online and sharing with their friends, you know, different privacy um, programs and digital literacy training programs, all out of this small storefront that sits next to a local barbershop in her local neighborhood. She's been doing it for 20 years. There are people that I know that are working in rural areas that are ensuring that tribal lands have a voice at the table when it comes to federal policymaking. Uh, One champion that I recently met, over at the National Congress of American Indians, just spoke about the importance of ensuring that we do not leave uh, tribal lands behind. Because what some people don't realize is that they, they experience some of the highest systemic inequalities and consequences of poverty, you know, more so than any other population. And it's not a surprise, given what we have done to their communities. I could go on and on and on,
1: Did you have any aha moments or any further clarity during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic? I think the
4: aha moment I realized particularly, and this is a serious note, unfortunately, we lost a lot of people in my family to COVID Mm. um, because I'm from New Rochelle, New York, where the impetus was for the viral infection outbreak. And, you know, I realized my aha moment is that life is not promised. And so you've got to live your life to its fullest. And that's what I'm doing in my work and in my free time, and among my loved ones.
1: What is giving you hope right now?
4: My children. What gives me hope is the fact that they were resilient enough to get through this pandemic. You know, my son was a COVID graduate. No prom, no homecoming, no college tours. And he finished his first year of college, and he survived. And he's being resilient and bouncing back. And they give me hope that the babies will teach us old folks how to get back into the swing of, of what society should look like.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on. This was great. It was great to learn more about you and the work that you're doing. We appreciate it.
4: Callie. thank you for having me on this Optum podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: I feel like I learned so much from our conversations with our guests and specifically from a social responsibility perspective Just how important it is to think about, like Dr. Turner-Lee is saying, making sure that we are playing our role in terms of ensuring that all of our employees have access to digital health and technology, and the communities that we're in also have that same kind of access so that we don't deepen the divides that already exist.
0: Right. I love what Dr. Turner-Lee said about just the train has left the station, and it is flying down the tracks, and we do need to slow down and make sure that we have you know, not left even further behind the people who don't have the access or the tools that they need for the digital technology.
1: It's inspiring to see how different organizations, public and private, are working on this issue. It's so important to get us to a goal of having each person get the care that they deserve when they need it and how they prefer it. Digital is a big enabler of this, but it needs a more nuanced approach.
0: Yes, and I think a nuanced approach is also very applicable to our next episode, which is going to focus on adolescent mental health. We'll talk about new approaches in addressing gaps in care for America's youth. Until then, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time. I'm Stacy Dubb.
1: I'm Callie Chamberlain, and this is Until It's Fixed, a health innovation podcast from Optum. Thank you so much for listening.